I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Our guest today is Eve DeCord, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross, a post he has held since 2010. He grew up in uh, Switzerland, is now based in Geneva. He was a TV reporter in Switzerland covering sports and politics before coming to the Red Cross in 1992. Prior to being named director in 2010, he served in various posts in Israel and the occupied territories in the Sudan and Yemen, the Northern Caucasus, and Georgia. We've asked him uh, to talk to us today about a survey the uh, organization took between June and September among 17,000 people in 16 countries, some of whom have experienced war in recent years and some, such as the United States, who have not. It caught our interest because it has some key insights into the effect that social media and the 24-hour news cycle is having on our attitudes toward war and its impact. Uh, thanks for joining us, Eve. And Pleasure. why did you decide to conduct this survey? I think uh, as the Red Cross, we are, we are working in very close proximity with people affected by war everywhere. So my colleagues today will be in Aleppo, so not just in Damascus, or they will be in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in South Sudan in Ukraine, in Iraq. And I think we are on a daily basis seeing that the war is changing, that the way people are fighting, the way people also relate to each other, the way they communicate is changing. And for us, it was useful not just to operate, but also to take one step back and maybe to challenge our own assumptions about what is happening right now in the world and to ask the opinion of the people. And that, that's, in that sense, is very interesting. So I guess it's no surprise, but the uh, survey shows that people living in countries affected by war or living near countries affected by war uh, respond in a different way to the questions uh, compared to people living in countries such as the United States, United Kingdom, China, Russia, and France. So talk a little bit about that just to start us off. Why do you think, obviously, there, we know the basic reason, because they've experienced war. But what, the, the differences in their attitudes are striking, aren't they? I, I must say the first thing is I was, a, I was a little bit surprised because I, I was expecting, we did a survey in 99, the same survey, uh, 17,000 people. So we checked the same questions 15 years later, right? And what is extremely interesting is that you feel still in country affected by war, people still feel very deeply that the law of war should be applied, that limits at war are central. They think deeply that civilians should not be attacked under any circumstances. They're very clear about healthcare, very clear. Hospital can't be attacked. And by the way, they are joined on that one by the people of the P5 country, very strong. So you can still see there are some taboos. Hospital, healthcare worker, everybody in the world across culture thinks you should not attack them. But it's still a bit of a surprise for me that people in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria still feel that, yes, law of war matters. And in that sense, I think it's reassuring. Now, the question we should ask ourselves, what happened with the P5 country? So the P5 country, or the 
the public opinion of the P5 country, you see a shift in attitude. Tell us what the P5 countries are. So the, uh, we're talking about Russia, we're talking about China, we're talking about US, UK and France, right? And we're polling the, the public opinion in this country. And what is interesting is the shift of attitude is mainly related to a growing acceptance of civilian casualties in war. You can see that very clearly, right? Whereas people in affected countries say, no, there is absolutely no way that civilian casualty can be, can be accepted. Uh, people, including this country in the US, would say, you know, in special situation like, and we ask a question, can we attack enemy combatants in populated area, knowing that it will kill many civilians? And then 78% of people affected or country of, of affected by war, they would say no. But only 40% of, uh, of P5 uh, uh, opinion public would say no. So you, you start to see a bit of differences. Same about humanitarian. We ask, if, is it normal or wrong that humanitarian are sometimes killed when they do their missions in war? 40% um, of people in P5 country, in Security Council country, will think, yes, it's normal. So there is a bit of a shift, clearly. And I think we need to reflect why. Is it because they don't experience war, as you mentioned? Is it because since 99, a lot of things happening? 9-11, the fact that people maybe feel more insecure, including in this country. Maybe there is also a different relationship to who is the other. This country, if like at the, at the US, but UK is a good example. You, the experience of war was very different maybe 20 or 30, 40, 40 years ago. You have much more people who did war at the time, right? Through the draft, if I think, the numbers of soldiers. So the society felt maybe much more connected to the experience of war than today uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the reality. So I think there is something around that we need to, 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 to think about. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that uh, social media has, pe has made people closer to one another across the globe, or do you think it has made it uh, all too easy to uh, scroll past the suffering of others? In other words, when we see and hear in social media uh, about these horrible things, uh, do we have a tendency to kind of get used to those pictures, or does it make us more aware of the suffering? I think social media is changing the attitude of everybody. That's very clear. And not only in the US or in Europe, I see that everywhere. I see that in Somalia, I see that in Ukraine, in Syria. People have phone, mobile phone is everywhere. So the way people relate to each other, the way they will explore that, the way they will look at you is very different. Can I give you one anecdote? It's an interesting thing happened in Somalia. Somalia is really a very poor country, 35 years of war. Three years ago, you had a typhoon in Somalia, a very serious typhoon. It hit one community, 200 kilometers from Mogadishu, the main city. Our team was in Mogadishu. It took them four days to deploy, four days, because Somalia is a very difficult country. You have to negotiate with every clan when you go through four days. They arrive after four days to, in fact, the communities, and they're received by the head of community, a woman, Somali woman. And she looked at my team, she doesn't smile. She just say, you are late. Late? Four days crossing? She takes her phone and she says, I've seen there was a typhoon in Philippines two days ago. It took you 24 hours to respond. And here, four days? And by the way, this little hospital you're bringing, it's a much smaller than the one you bring in Philippines. You don't like us? So I'm just telling you, this is three years ago in Philippines, it is changing the attitude. It's changing the way you relate to each other. And not just only here, 
also in country affected by war. People will not just look at you anymore as just the Red Cross, but they will look at you also as a service provider. So no surprise that somewhat when we look at the result of the survey, if we come back to the survey, that yes, possibly the way we relate to each other, the way we will relate to the other is something which is shifting. There is no doubt on that one. And last but not least, if you look in terms of information, what I was so surprised is also to see how information now is used to in fact uh, control the propaganda, control the image. I'm amazed by, if I look at the famous Islamic State group, Look in terms of communication and social media. This is 21st century. There is not one image, one image, about them, about their soldier, about their fighter, which is not provided by them. Find interesting, no? All the image is controlled by them. So 21st century, social media, at the same time, I mean, you can see the control, you can see how much it's changed the landscape in which we operate. You know, uh, hearing you say that, uh, it reminds me, I mean, that, that social media, uh, for want of a better word, uh, sort of creates this sense of entitlement uh, to certain things. Uh, they expected you to be there. What took you so long to get here? We're now seeing in social media, people want the news for free. Uh, we're seeing in music, people expect to get the music for free. They don't expect uh, for there to be any cost. It's somehow, well, it's always been this way. Well, of course, it hasn't always been that way. But somehow, uh, I think we're seeing that in not just in these countries you're talking about, but in the United States, for Absolutely. example. You know, as we're talking about social media and as we're talking about perceptions in other countries, in this country, we're facing right now something of a fake news crisis. That's been going on around the world for a long time as well. How do you think fake news is impacting the way people view war? Are people using fake news to um, affect public opinion in the countries that you're working? I think what, what I found difficult with fake news is somewhat it, it, it uh, creates a distance between fact and people, right? And people find more and more difficult to uh, being able to look at what is right or what is wrong or what is what is really uh, uh, um, real or not. I see that at the political level, but also, of course, when it comes to military. And I think look at Aleppo. If you want to be aware of what what is happening on Aleppo, you can go. It would take you one good hours, but on internet, on social media, you will have very good information. But I would really challenge you to be able to find who is doing what exactly, how, who is the good, who is the bad. So I think social media just accelerate also the fact it's difficult to have a clear view when you look at facts. So what does that mean? It's just also accelerate a very opinionated relationship to, to information. And that worries me. I see that in war. I see people will then not take the time to try to distinguish. They found difficult to go to a platform where you have really all the information put together. So what they will do, they will go to the people who somewhat will resonate their own opinion. I see that very, very strongly in country at war. That's interesting because we're seeing in the United States in terms of media, people self-selecting their news based on what they like. Are, are you seeing a minute? There's always been propaganda in war. There's always been propaganda um, in countries that are war torn, countries that have authoritarian governments, countries that are uh, you know coming apart at the seams. Do you see uh, more fake news now than you did a year ago, or do you see about the same, less? It's difficult to say. What I see as a fact is you do have less independent reporting. That's very clear. I think we, we don't speak so much about that. But one thing which has disappeared are journalists. 
I don't see journalists anymore in places where we operate. There's none, right? Remember 10 years ago, you would still feel, you know, important journalists be on the ground, being able to be there. 10 years ago, you would have journalists reporting about the Islamic State group, about Syria, from Aleppo, from Al-Raqqa, from Mosul today. What are the information we get from Mosul, which are independent? Somebody that we know we will value. Today, we have somewhat, we're not sure. There's a lot of information coming out, but we're not sure about the quality of the people who are giving the information. What social media do is it helps everybody to produce his own information very quickly. So I've, I've really seen, and I think we are underestimate the fact that journalists have disappeared somewhat uh, of, and, and they don't provide us anymore the ability to somewhat uh, put issues on perspective. And in war, uh, the fact that journalists disappeared was clearly uh, strategic intentions from the warring party, very clear. I've seen that the last 10 years, targeting information, targeting the people who can give an objective information. One of the things we're trying to determine in this podcast are, are people overwhelmed with information? Uh, are they desensitized by it? Are they overwhelmed with what they're seeing in the media? I'm not sure that they're overwhelmed, to be honest, uh, to be maybe reflected. I see that's true. There is a lot of information. I think there is maybe also a speed in information who makes it difficult. But what seems to me complex, if take Aleppo, which is so much at the core of, of our news, uh, at least globally, right? On Almost on a daily basis. I think we have rarely seen uh, one city being with us almost since a year and a half. So we feel they are almost, we are with them. But on the other hand, reflect, what is the level of information you receive? If I, who is able to give you information about Aleppo, right? So, and we all know that uh, the Washington Post or the New York Times, they don't have really better information than I do, right? Because they won't be able to have their own journalists staying in Aleppo making a difference. I, I won't be able myself to relate with one or two person or one or two institutions who really are in Aleppo and can give me the, the complexity, explain me the gray dimensions of what's happening, the dynamic. And so we are, we are lacking the ability to capture the dynamic. We lack, we're lacking the ability to capture what is really happening in a world where, of course, when we have so many information, what we would like is to classify this information, good and bad right or wrong, and it's difficult. It's really difficult, especially when it comes to uh, the environment at war or, or the places which are very challenging. So no surprise that people somewhat will then go where it's easier for them to go, which is to go where their instincts will tell them to go, right? So if it's Aleppo, I don't know where to go, so I don't go. I'm not interested because it's too complex. And then I will go maybe to follow something which is more easy for me to understand. This is a critical thing we're dealing with uh, in the news media in the United States is shrinking newsrooms, um, less reporters. Less reporters in, in newsrooms in America at our major outlets means there's going to be less reporters uh, covering things internationally. Absolutely. And I think it also creates less accountability. You know, uh, Bob, I first time I'm meeting you, but I'm pleased to meet you, but I knew you too. So in a way, my relationship as a citizen to you was a clear one, right? So I could somewhat follow you. I know what you were. See, if Bob would tell me this is what is happening in Mosul, and I'm in Mosul, I'm talking to you, somewhat I will believe you. Or maybe I will challenge you, but I know it's you, Bob. Today about Mosul, I have a lot of information, but I have no clue who gives me this information, right? It makes a hell of a difference, and it creates a different relationship with information, but also with the people who provide the information. And by the way, that has also changed the relationship people have with my own organization, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Because in this very complex environment, 
when we as an organization start to say, and we are very careful about communication, but when we say this is dramatic or this is really problematic, then people will very carefully listen to us because they want to relate to organizational people that they can trust. That's very, very interesting. I, I want to go back to uh, what impact and does it help or hurt when we show the horrors of war? There were, there have been several photos. I remember the photo of the, the tiny baby uh, that was Ayan, being yes. carried. Yes. I remember a photo of this young Syrian boy covered mm-hmm. in dust and mm-hmm. blood in an mm-hmm. ambulance. Those, those photos went viral. What do you think the effect of these so-called viral media photos uh, have on the perception of war? What I've seen is not just a question of a photo, it's the right timing also, right? So we know it. Uh, it, it. It might sometimes create a very different relationship with the other. That's what I see. It's interesting about Syria because I think everybody in Europe and in the U.S., and I would say worldwide, know that what is happening in Syria is now a global crisis. It's not anymore a Syrian crisis or domestic crisis. It has become a global crisis. Everybody knows that. But it's difficult to relate to it. It's complicated. It's going on every day. You're not sure who is the good, the bad. I mean, frankly, who do you want to support if you don't really know? And then suddenly in this very complex environment, you have a moment very specific which brings your relationship and your connections much more clear. And it happens several times when it comes to Syria, where suddenly people connected with something happening in Syria, which was very clear. It was very clear. It was a children, I'm not surprised, a child suffering, you know. And it could be your child. I think there is, so it recreates the relationship between, in fact, the persons, the people, and the other. And the other become not something far away, become a child who could be your child. So I think this connection is not new, but this connection happened. Now, let's also recognize, I don't think the human being as a collective can do that too often. It's not a surprise that in Syria, if I look at Europe or the US, it happens only what? Once or twice a year. That suddenly you have a moment of emotion, positive emotion, and then it goes away again. But, you know, for those of us in journalism, and this has been a problem for a long, long time, going all the way back to the earliest wars, how much of the horror do you show? Uh, how, where is the line? I always think of two movies, one called The Longest Day, about D-Day and World War II. And everybody who saw that movie thought, my heavens, you know, I want to be a part of this. And then along comes the movie Saving Private Ryan, where you saw the, just the brutality of war. And a lot of people said, my God, thank heaven I didn't have to be a part of that. And I think it gave people much more of an appreciation of just what those people went through. But there were two entirely different movies because of, of you didn't show the people getting shot in The Longest Day. You saw them getting shot uh, in, in Saving Private Ryan. I think it's a very fair question, Bob. But my, my sense is, is not just the image, it's also how do, what is the environment and how do you tell the story? Right, uh, and and I think it would be difficult to impose people with too much violence, right? And and uh, what what can they do with it? But but I give you two examples, which is an interesting one, which is about torture, right? I mean, you know, in the survey, one of the interesting thing is you see a shift of attitude in some country when you ask people, uh, what do you think can we torture an enemy combatant if we want to get more information, right? And then you suddenly have people. A vast majority of people say, no, no, it should not torture. But then suddenly they say, yeah, maybe we can torture that. And, you know, I'm deeply convinced that 
torture everybody knows is wrong. But if you are starting to change the way you portray torture, then it creates a different type of link. And we had a long discussion yesterday with some of your colleagues about the popular culture. And somebody mentioned he was totally right. So it was not about showing torture, but it was who was doing torture. He said before 9-11 in this country, and I would say in UK and other places, it was very clear. When you saw torture, it was always the bad people torturing the good one. Very clear. You would never, ever, ever think the good guy torturing somebody. Never, really. And suddenly, 9-11 happens for good reason, bad reason. You have a popular culture changing a bit, integrating that. And then suddenly, you know, you see good people, the famous Jack Bowers and all these people, torturing for the good, you know. And it's a very smart, so to answer your question, so not just to expose people to violence, but it's also, is what are you telling? What's the story? And here you have a shift, really. And I'm not surprised that the attitude then also change and follow that. Let's talk about the laws of war. Uh, One of the things that Donald Trump sort of shocked the American people with was when he called the Geneva Conventions the problem. What do you anticipate from this next administration, and how are you planning to operate under a Trump presidency? I'm confident about your country, Bob. Uh, I've seen your country fighting uh, with sometimes war, and it's difficult. Your country is confronted with 15 years of war. People underestimate. It's a very, very long time. In your modern history, you've never been so long at war. And it's a very strange situation because you are at war without feeling that you are at war, which is a bit complicated, right, compared to your history. Um, Because there's so many people who are segmented away from. We don't have a draft anymore. We have I'm, a, I'm aware. We, yeah, we I'm, have an we have a, a, a all volunteer service. Absolutely. We have no, no. You know, not everybody knows somebody in the United States military. Not everybody knows somebody who's been deployed. That's very true. In fact, it's one half of one percent. Exactly. Whereas in the World War Two was twenty percent of the society, which I I'm, everybody had I'm, exactly had no. somebody. Yeah. But I think what, what I want by that, by starting by that, I'm an organization working. I'm re- really leading an organization working in war. And we are aware when war affects the country, and that's the case. It's complex for the country. It's complex for its institution to find the right balance. And I've seen your country fighting, not only with Mr. Trump, but already under Mr. Bush, right, and Mr. Obama. I mean, it was not a, it's a not an easy way to find the right balance of how do you do war, what does that mean. So your country is a complex country, but I, I, I've seen, in fact, uh, the ability of the country to do the right check and balance and to find the right element. And here, my, if I may say, my experience and positive experience also come from, in fact, your military. Your military leadership, and I've hear, hear them again over the last few weeks, they've been very clear. They are very clear. Because why? Because they experience war. They know exactly what is why it's useful to respect the law of war. They don't do that for moral reason. I don't think so. They do that for very pragmatic element. They are aware of the benefit. If you let things go, if you have a free-for-all war, I mean, the impact will be dramatic, not only on the people that you try to help or people you occupy, but also on your own army. They are perfectly aware of that. And I found interesting to hear your military leader um, saying, no, 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 Geneva Convention, very important. And we want to hold ourselves to the highest standard. We don't want to be compared to the terrorist. And I, I like that. I think it's an important it's, a, it's an important discussion, but it's an important one to maintain. Well, I think it's important to underline that in World War II, uh, we didn't have to become the Nazis to defeat the Nazis. And sometimes I think it would be good to reflect on that. 
we beat them with American values, yes. not with the values that yeah. they yeah. that they were that they were fighting for. Uh, what does your survey show about how people feel about the laws of war? Uh, the survey shows that the people in general uh, feel that the law of war are important, and even let's also be sixty-seven percent of them said they have heard of it or they know it, right? But what I found interesting is even the one who don't know about it, their instinct is the right one. They know perfectly that torture is illegal. They know perfectly that rape is illegal. They know perfectly that killing a prisoner of war is completely not possible, you know? And I like that. I found that very, very powerful. What I found also more interesting uh, is they start to reflect. We ask them, what can influence the behavior of combatant? And what I found interesting, across culture, very clearly, more than 80% of people says the military commander the military leader, they are the one. And they say much more than, it's interesting, national or international justice. It says something in 2016 that still military leaders are perceived by people, opinion, public opinion, in affected country by war, but also here in the US, in UK, in Russia, in China, as possibly the critical people when it comes to influencing behavior at war. I like that. Eve, in our country, the United States military is overwhelmingly one of the most popular institutions. Our, our, our leaders in government, depending on who it is at any given time, might not have a high opinion approval, uh, high approval rating. But our military almost always has a high approval rating. Um, our leaders, as you point out, our military leaders, as you point out, um, uniformly believe in the Geneva Conventions. They they come out against terror. Uh, they they've come out against torture. But in your survey, almost half of the American people surveyed showed that they think that torture is okay to obtain military information and then it's just part of war. How do you think that happened? So if you just look at the torture, we are comparing with what people are telling us in 99. So the thing which you can compare very clearly is that when you ask people, is torture wrong or is part of war, still two-thirds of the people across the board, including in this country, are saying it's wrong, right? But what is interesting is then when you ask a specific questions, if you can you torture an enemy combatant to get important military information, then you have the very different. So in country like Afghanistan, Yemen, um, uh, Iraq, uh, you you would Ukraine, people would say no, you can't. You have to be very careful. You have to maintain the principle. Where is true in some country in the U.S. Uh, in Nigeria, for example, you have a different opinion. And here you do have half, sometimes less, uh, people saying yes, you can torture. The explanation is, I think, there is several explanations. One is is clearly related to the fact, if you look at this country, related that we're living in a different environment than in 99, clearly. Until 99, the question was not about torture. The question was, you had a very clear view of who was the enemy, what was happening in the world. I think 9-11 has changed, possibly, also the environment in which uh, we all live, by the way. I think it's also the fact that we start to, as country, the war have shifted also. It's not country against country. It's country against what we call non-state arm group, which is difficult, right? So you have a different type of war and a different type of enemy. And then possibly at the time you had also leadership, it's clear, in different country who somewhat says, yes, torture is something which can be done, right? It's part of what we should be able to do. So you had a, a, a rather change in the way people were starting to talk about it. Before it was taboo. And maybe what we have to reflect, and again, the survey tells us, when you have a breakdown of a taboo, then you have to be very careful. 
because then it starts to really, you know, lead us to difficult moments. Look at uh, the healthcare. It's a huge taboo still for people everywhere. They will say, even if they know that today in Yemen, in South Sudan, in Syria, hospitals are systematically bombed. But everybody, including, by the way, the Yemeni, the Syrian, the South Sudanese, will tell you, we should protect hospitals. They're very clear on that one. And this taboo is very central. On torture, there is a shift, absolutely. And I think we need to be very careful because the shift is something which I think will, will impact society. Because we all know that torture doesn't work. I think all general will tell you. It doesn't provide you the information that you want. General Mattis, our Secretary of Defense uh, uh, appointee, um, said, you know, torture doesn't work. Give me a six-pack of beer and a couple packs of cigarettes, and I'll do much better than torture yeah. in yeah. learning information. And he's not the only one. You would say constantly military of, of, in every country will tell you that. They're also perfectly aware that torture has not only an impact on the people on the moment, but it has a long-lasting impact. It has an impact on the communities, on the society. Look at the Syrian society. I mean, it's a society where the social fabric is completely broken. And one of the reasons, not the only one, one of the reasons is because you have a, such a high level of torture right now that makes a society in a very, very difficult situation. So I would say we need to reflect a little bit of what does that mean. And I think we need to make sure that also we reflect on what is the popular culture saying about torture. And I think there is a shift here, no doubt on that one. Can I go back to Syria and popular culture for a second and, and images? We've talked about all those things in this. Uh, podcast, but one of the things that struck me is, you know, the the drone video you see of uh, of Aleppo. Um, it looks like to many Americans uh, a post-apocalyptic video game. Does that kind of imagery make people more interested in trying to save Syria? Less interested? Indifferent? Does it desensitize them? My experience is that people in general, if they can relate to, they have a tendency to be generous. I don't see, contrary to what people th think, that people are less generous now than they were 20 years ago. The point they still have to relate to something. They need to be able to do something, right? When you see an image of a totally destroyed city like Aleppo, I mean, it's a shock, but it's very difficult to know what can I do, you know, if you're not a professional, if you're not humanitarian or military, I mean, what, what can you do? When, on the contrary, you see a small child, uh, you know, dying or uh, separated from his parents, your elements or your ability to somewhat do something is a much stronger element. And that's the big issues we've seen when it comes to war. For people, it's difficult to relate to it. It's complicated. It's lasting also. Who is the God? Who is the What can I do? So I think we have to be very careful not just to criticize people. We have to understand how gener generosity is build building. What worries me much more is the way we start to relate with the other. And we have to be very careful in our society. Eve, as we uh, approach the uh, new year, what do you see as your greatest challenge? The greatest challenge remains to really manage close proximity, physical proximity, like we are right now in the studio, with people affected by war. We, we as an organization, have the ambitions to maintain very, very close proximity in, under, in, in order to understand the needs of the people, their coping mechanism, but also in order to be clear, to engage government, non-state arm group, all the people who somewhat control affected population. And you do, to do that, you have to be very humble. You can do that only because you're on the spot. It's much more easy 
to engage in Aleppo the uh, government of Syria through its governor, for example, or rebels through their leaders on the spot than in Damascus or in Istanbul. <laughs> Makes it very, very different. And it's true everywhere. But I can tell you, Bob, accessing people these days is complicated. It is complicated. If I look at you, for example, if I may say, you, your world has shrink as an American citizen. I can't use a Red Cross uh, delegates uh, coming from the US everywhere, right, as an example. I can't use a Red Cross delegate coming from Denmark these days everywhere. So I have to rethink also in this complex, very polarized world, our own ability to access people and to take the risk to be in close proximity with people. Because if we abandon, if we agree that there are areas where you don't have any more an international human action, then I think we will lose our own ability to influence humanity. Well, we thank you, Eve, for what you are doing. Uh, Eve Decord, the Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross. For Andrew Schwartz, I'm Bob Schieffer. But that's not all, Bob. At the top of this podcast, we gave you just a tease of the great music from my friend Aaron Neville's new record, Apache. Let's hear some more from Aaron Neville. I just know this record's going to win a Grammy.
horizon was burning in the sky. You never know what's coming. It's turning on a dime. Oh, the world will keep on running. It's spending all the time. You gotta keep on moving. Or you'll be on the other side. And I know where life will take us. Is it waiting just to break us? When we go on faith alone, sometimes it's hard to believe what's going on. Gotta keep moving on. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit us at csis.org and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.